0: Welcome to the Firing Log, podcast edition. I'm Odin, and I run the onagama-west.com website. About two and a half months ago, I interviewed Malcolm Greenwood, did my last firing of the season, and then promptly did absolutely nothing with the recording. What I should have done was sat down and edited it and put it together into an episode, but instead, I just kind of lazed around, watching videos, doing nothing staring off into space, what have you. For that, I really need to apologize to Malcolm. It was um, inconsiderate and negligent of me to take so long to get this done. With that out of the way, a little bit about Malcolm. He began studying pottery in the mid-70s under the tutelage of Makoto Yabe, a Japanese potter who was living in America. Uh, Malcolm was in school at the University of Massachusetts, getting a business degree. He did some wood firing in a wood-fired raku kiln that he built, then went on with a normal and responsible life in the business world, worked in Africa where he built a cross-draft kiln, which he says didn't work so great, but he did get to see a lot of interesting pottery in Africa, and then finally returned to Australia at some point in time, well, around 1989, He's not shy about it. He got canned and decided he was going to, at that time, take his hobby and turn it into a profession. So for almost two decades now, Malcolm has been a studio potter, a professional potter, which I think is really amazing and the kind of thing that gives hope to, I think, a lot of people who probably have regular day jobs but wish they were doing pottery more. So I talk with Malcolm about where he's at now, how he got there, and what it takes to stay there. And it's very interesting. He also talks a bit about the wood fire work that he does, this being a wood fire podcast, of course, there must be some relation. And uh, he's currently firing in an anagama at the Sturt Ceramic Center, which is a pretty famous, pretty famous place in Australia. And I've got a link I've got a link to Sturt in the blog entry related to this podcast. In any event, I think you'll find Malcolm interesting and entertaining, and let's just get to the interview. Uh, Malcolm, how are you? I'm good, it. How are you? Great. I uh, understand the weather there is never better, or perfect today and perfect tomorrow.
1: What is it you said? beautiful one day perfect the next
0: got it okay as I understand it you are one of those interesting types of potters who came into the pottery world from something completely unrelated can you tell us a little bit about your background before getting into pottery
1: well I, I started my working career as a, as a what we call here a fitter and machinist or a toolmaker in the United States.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I did a, a four-year apprenticeship and I did mechanical engineering at night as well. Um, and then I went to the United States to uh, do a business degree. And during the business degree, I my last semester, actually, I actually had time to do something for myself. And... Um, Having always been interested in ceramics, I actually took got to take a class in pottery. So that was the very beginning, and um, it was like a duck to water. I think, with the engineering background and having worked with my hands ever since I was very very small, and it just came fairly naturally. And um, from there, I I, while I was working in the corporate world and engin- doing engineering, I um, was making pots more or less as a hobby. It became more of an obsession. And then I changed to being a full-time potter. Graduation. Oh, 20-odd 20 years, 25 years, something like that.
0: And what what sort of made you finally think that Pottery was really the direction you wanted to go instead of, instead of working in a more traditional kind of, kind of job.
1: Well, I, I had been thinking about making pots for a living for a long time, more as a, a dream than anything else. <laughs> and then after making millions and millions of dollars for my employers, I put a little toe out of place and got my head locked off. I was fired a couple of days before Christmas one year. Ouch! And, and um, I guess that was the time when I said, "Well, you know, this lack of ethics and morals in business—I've had enough." And I'm going to make—I'm going to walk out the back and into my workshop and and make pots full time. And it was also um, a great opportunity to be at home with my kids as they were growing up. My eldest daughter's first two years of her life, I hardly saw her. So when I look back on it now, I've just been so fortunate to have that time together and, you know, really, really see everything as they both grew up and be, be at home. So absolutely no question in my mind that I did the right thing, although um, it was a big... Income sacrifice, but then you tailor your lifestyle to suit the income, and in the end, I think um, yeah, life has been a lot, a lot better for it.
0: Um, a quick question here. I know, I know, lots of potters think about what it would be to, you know, kind of chuck it all and be a potter because. I think that's a dream for a lot of people who do potters sort of on the side, my myself included. Um, when you when you really did this and really went forward with it, did you face any kind of resistance from family or friends?
1: I think uh more surprise than anything else. You know, people thought I was a bit nuts. Um, think, oh well you'll have a play for a couple of years and then go back to the corporate world. Well, that was um well, that was eighty nine or something like that. So it's you know coming up to twenty years now.
0: It doesn't sound it doesn't sound like they're going to be uh, it doesn't sound like they're winning that bet.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, I think I'm unemployable in my original <laughs> career
0: path. Um, Do you mind if I ask what specifically you were you were doing
1: before I stopped? Yeah, before, before we, I began making pots, as a full-time profession. Exactly. Uh the last uh, the last job I had I was a general manager of a medium-sized manufacturing business making uh, screws and bolts. And before that, I was a management consultant.
0: You know, just sort of a big
1: accounting firm.
0: Just sort of off kind of off topic, but I've you know, I've wandered through hardware aisles looking at all the screws and bolts and wondered about, um, just sort of wondered about the manufacturing of these in the sense that, you know, each one is so small and uh, inexpensive. How how many does a, a company have to make to um, turn a profit? And how many screws and bolts can actually be used in the world in a year and stuff like that? It just seems like such a, such a small, such a, small thing, a hard way, actually, to make money. I don't know if I'm completely off base with that or not. You uh, must have made a billion bolts.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, millions, millions. Um, just about everything we use every day has some sort of fastener in it, mm. screw or a bolt. So there's a lot being used, and, well, these days, most of them come from Southeast Asia and China but um it was possible to in australia to make a business if you provided a better quality product and provided the service even though it was much more expensive so but you still had to make millions of the bloody things that's for <laughs> <sure>.
0: <laughs> yeah it just because you know at, at two cents a piece or five cents a piece it would take a long time to make it would take a lot of well to add up to the something.
1: machines are very high speed.
0: Sure. Um, so okay. Around about 1989, you decided that you were just going to start start a pottery. Just Desc- describe the pot. Just describe the pottery that you started, your studio, and and just how you got it going.
1: Well, we live um, quite close to the center of Sydney, and we're very lucky because i worked in the corporate world and my wife is working as well we were able to we have bought our house in a very nice part of the city but one of the reasons when we bought our current house is that it had a a shed out the back garage and that's become my workshop and it's very small but if you manage the space properly you can um you can make and fire and get out the door a lot of a lot of pots and yeah very small very cramped you just have to be very efficient the way you use the space
0: okay so so when you started you just kind of moved into your garage and started making things I imagine you already had some pottery equipment there for your own
1: oh yeah yeah I already I had already built a kiln you know some years before that so everything was set up and then Instead of using it once every month, I was using it every day mm okay and my current wheel well my wheel I bought in Boston in about nineteen seventy five or seventy six
0: so what kind of wheel is it Shimpo. okay um be before we go too far we should we should go back and, and talk about um actually how you learned to do pottery because I understand you you worked with a Japanese Potter named Makoto Yabe.
1: Yeah, that was in Boston, and I had taken a few uh, a few classes before I met Makoto, and then Makoto came to the United States. Must have been um, must have been seventy seven or something like that, I think, and um, and he was. Um, I guess employed by the Clay Art Centre in Boston and that's where I started taking a class with him and then started basically working in the same workshop and working alongside him and he had a tremendous influence on my approach to clay you know it was firstly it was about learning a whole bunch of new techniques you know learning to make pots in the Japanese way and that was like a, a, it was just an amazing experience, the whole opening up and um, just really made sense. And so, once you know, once I really learnt the basic techniques all over again, and then it was more about learning about his approach and watching his approach to working with clay and almost by osmosis, I suppose, you know getting a lot of information and feeling about how he was working with it.
0: Um, if if I can bring up a lousy pun, um, what are some of the nuts and bolts of making things the Japanese way as opposed to the Western way?
1: Well, I think um, I'd probably say three main things that, you know, if we're basically talk, talking about basic techniques. Firstly was making your own tools and not many tools but you know a few basic tools, that was really important. Then wedging the clay. Spiral wedging. And then learning to throw using very little water. And I think there's like three of the very basic things that make a huge difference and probably a very different approach to, you know, like a more Western European sort of way.
0: Let's take those one at a time. What's what's the importance of making your own tools?
1: Well, I think it gets you close to the process. You know, it takes you back to that very uh, basic aspect of making pots. You know, they're made for utilitarian purposes. So you can, uh, you know, find bits of bamboo, bits of wood, and then just shape it into exactly the way you want to make exactly the shape that you want the tool in order to make the pot. Like, for instance, even just recently, I've made a, a new rib that I like just to to, to form or deform a pot a little bit differently. And, you know, over the years, you make the tools just the way you want them. The trimming tools are made out of metal strap and you can shape them the way that you want with different to produce radiuses or radii or sharp corners on foot rings or whatever. So it's, it's, I found it to be very, a great way to get connected with actually working with the clay. And, and, and to be self-sufficient. There was one, one time I was traveling in Europe and I met um, some potters in Switzerland. And of course, I'm sort of wandering around with a backpack, of course, and I don't have any tools. So I spent, an hour in this little town in Switzerland sort of wandering around, found enough materials and was, thro- was throwing in a, another half hour or an hour after that so it was very sort of satisfying in a way
0: and freeing yeah let's talk about wedging um, why is uh, the spiral wedging important as opposed to uh, the other type I guess the ram's head
1: well I think it's it sets up the stresses in the clay much better in terms of throwing. Um, That's about all I can say. So, you know, if you spiral wedge and the access of the wedging is the same as the access of the the clay when you start throwing, the clay unwinds. I think um, the stresses that are relieved when you fire the pot, you know, allows you to keep things straighter if you want to and... um, well, I think it makes throwing easier in the sense. At least that's what I've found.
0: Now, when when I throw, it's almost like I'm swimming. So tell me about this not using much water.
1: Well, Makoto actually um, showed me how to use some old bed sheet um, on my, to hold between my on both hands, to throw with instead of using sponges or just your hands. And that sort of creates less friction between the clay and the fingers, and then I tend to throw the clay reasonably stiff on some things on bigger pieces and just use very little water, so that the wheel head is um, in many cases still completely dry
0: when I'm done throwing, you should see me i just I look like I took a roll in a mud puddle
1: <laughs> well. I've, I've heard from other people, that um, from other friends of mine who have studied in Japan. Um, one fellow in particular, he was just recounting this story where the fellow he was working with would come to work, you know, dressed in his um, best clothes and leave after the day without a spot of clay on him.
0: Wow.
1: <laughs> so that, well, not quite there yet.
0: <laughs> I went, well... I'm going to have to, I'll have to try that. I'll have to try not throwing with so much water. But I mean, I think uh, any, I probably use the maximal amount of water as it is. So any kind of improvement would be good on my part. What do you think, what do you think about your time with, uh, with Makoto Yabe was most important or most influential in your own future work?
1: Well, I think um, you know just seeing the freedom that he had in his work, and was pretty important. And then this idea that there's no real correct or right technique. If it works, that's fine. So you know, in some cases, I think people are so focused on the correct way to make pots. Well, I don't think there is a correct way, and. his approach was certainly that way and it was just very freeing I think he had just an absolutely incredible influence on my work and my approach I think the philosophy you know I would spend hours with him firing the kilns and just um, talking and watching it was just a you know this sort of seminal influence it was just amazing
0: can can you think of of um, a particular anecdote or uh, instance where you felt yourself coming to an aha moment with his teaching?
1: Mm, I don't know that I can say that there was any one thing. I mean, maybe maybe when I'd finally learnt to spiral wedge was which was probably right at the beginning. I thought oh this is just the way it's got to be the way it should be and from then on it was just there was no other no other way to approach clay
0: I understand that you have been involved in a certain amount of wood firing
1: Yeah um when I well, the first wood firing, I suppose, was a little rancu, wood-fired rancou kiln I built in Massachusetts. Okay, so a long time ago. Let's talk. That was.
0: Oh, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about that kiln. Tell me about its details and how it worked out for you.
1: Oh well, it was all sort of found materials. It was very rough, and you know, built into a hillside a little bit. Um, you know, anything I could find anywhere to sort of put it together but it worked and I got some I mean it was just a bit of fun really just playing around as Raku is really in, su- in many senses um, but it was amazing you know sitting out there and actually getting it to temperature with with wood so that was the beginning.
0: Can you describe how the kiln was put together you know like the wear box and the fire box was it
1: well, I think it, I think I based it on a Fred Olson design. Actually, it might be in his book where the fire um, is underneath the wear chamber, goes along underneath, comes up, goes past the wear, and then up the chimney.
0: So a basic so updraft. I'm, yeah. Okay. And where where did you find all the stuff to put it together?
1: Ah, oh, scrounged, you know. Potters and then Australian Australians as well tend to be scroungers. So. <laughs> you know, there was bits of kiln shelf, odd bricks. I actually found some um, some bricks not far from where this was in the is in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, and the bricks were an earthenware and they actually melted a little bit in the kiln, wow. which was really interesting. But you know, anything I could find, I scrounged some old fire bricks and old clay and watered up and everything. So
0: how long did Didn't it take it, how long did it take to fire?
1: I'd spend um probably spend a day, a whole you know, about twelve hours I suppose firing it, you know, once you get up to temperature and then actually getting the glazes to melt.
0: Were you able to uh put things in, take them out, put things in, take yeah. them, okay. Yeah. How much wood do you think it used?
1: Oh, not very much really. Um You know, probably a cubic meter, maybe.
0: Wow, that sounds like fun. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, my partner, who's my wife now, she thought I was absolutely nuts because it was in the middle of winter and it snowing and everything, <laughs> of course. But, uh, yeah, it was very interesting.
0: And then the... Tell me about the next wood kiln that you built.
1: Well, the next one was in Nigeria, and that was a bit of a dud, really, basically cross-drafting and um i really didn't know know enough probably at the time but still an interesting experience in nigeria going back to basics and because we couldn't get it wasn't couldn't get gas easily so the easiest thing was just to be self-sufficient again and um you know i learned a bit more about building kilns and about trying to fire with wood, so it all sort of I don't think I got anything out and don't think I really got to any temperature that was any any good so. but you know, they're all learning experiences. The making of the pots was very much a weekend sort of thing to keep me off the streets. <laughs> but um being in Africa was just incredible because I got to see a lot of Af- Nigerian pots, a lot of artwork. Some of the wood carving and um, textiles, different things like that. It's just an incredible experience.
0: Um, what's what was the Nigerian pottery like?
1: Well, there was um, one of the greatest experiences I had there was going to one of the towns, Jos, which is in like central Nigeria. It's up on a plateau, and it's really beautiful. But there I stumbled across this museum that um, that was just a museum of Nigerian ceramics from what, dating back whenever and I saw this incredible range of you know um, utilitarian pieces to ceremonial things just incredible and this um, museum was the reason I found it was because Wandering around and there's suddenly these two huge bottle kilns, old sort of English bottle kilns. I mm-hmm. thought, God, true. <laughs> and then we found this museum We're the only ones there, and it was quite an experience.
0: Did um, did the work that you saw there le- have an influence in you later? Influence oh, yeah, on you? Oh yeah, I think
1: it has. I mean, a lot of the textures on the surfaces were pretty interesting.
0: What kind of textures?
1: Um, oh, using corn cobs and ropes and and things like that. I mean, in some ways, they're very similar to some of the, you know, Japanese shapes too. And Japanese textures in some ways. I've found some remarkable similarities.
0: Um, in, can you give an example?
1: Um... I think mainly in terms of texture. Um, obviously, all the Nigerian pots were all low-fired, you know, fired in a pit. Sure. Um, but there was a few in terms of the, the shape of these these um, really deep sort of storage bowl things that was quite interesting. Mm. Well, I couldn't go to Abuja, where Cardu um, set up the pottery, because there was too much disease there at the time and uh-huh. it really wasn't safe to go there but I could but I did see work that was still coming out of that pottery that was for sale in the supermarkets and things around the different cities the city where I lived okay in
0: what what kind of wood fire have you done since then
1: well, when I came back to Australia in 1980, I uh, was working in this workshop um, with a bunch of other people. And there we built, um, ended up building a couple of wood-fired kilns. The first one being a sort of b style kiln, and the second one being an anagama, which unfortunately didn't really even fire, I don't think.
0: Oh my gosh, that's so much to build it and then not fire it. Yeah, well, the building's the landlord. hard. Oh. oh. <laughs> the,
1: the landlord spat the dummy.
0: Um, he did what? Spent the dummy? Spat the dummy, you know, got a bit upset. Oh. Say that say that one again? This is this is a new idiom for me. Yeah, well. He spat the dummy. <laughs> spat? You know what it? Spat, spat the like spit. Yeah. Huh, spat the dummy.
1: You know a dummy is um when the for the children to, young kids to suck on. I don't
0: know what you call them in the states. Oh, oh, okay. You mean a, a like a lollipop or a sucker? No, no, a pacifier or something. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, I think <laughs> okay. Now I get it. <laughs> That's a good one. Spat the dummy. I was thinking. Those... I was thinking of like you know he spit on an effigy of some kind. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> not quite no
0: okay but Sorry. that
1: kiln we, the first kiln we built there was we had some great pots out of it actually we fired for three days and um we got some i thought they were pretty good results and i suppose that really um spurred me on then and i found it quite exciting and and um when we couldn't fire the anagama we built i built i built another B Z N sort of style kiln at another place and um fired that a few times um and and that worked pretty well and got some pretty decent things out of that first firing wasn't so great but the second and third firings were okay and that was the beginning
0: i i got to ask why did why did Why'd the landlord spit the dummy?
1: Uh, well, he just wanted us to pay more rent, basically, because we took a bit more space on his property.
0: Oh, I see. Okay.
1: And we said, "Well, to hell with that."
0: <laughs> in terms of your in terms of your pottery business, you have you've been selling. Um, more traditional gas-fired and glazed work as opposed to wood-fired, is that...
1: Yeah, well, I think um, wood-firing ended up sort of um, basically stopping for a long time for me. Um, firstly, I ended up working too much and didn't have access to a kiln again. And, you know, working in the corporate world, that is. Mm-hmm. And then when I started making pots full-time really wood fired pieces it's not gonna provide you an income. It's it, a very specialized market so that um you know, I had to make things that people would buy. And a big part of that ended up being porcelain tableware, or still is porcelain tableware.
0: And and so, you've done you've done well at that, um, you know, looking on, on the internet at a at a couple things it looks like your work's been um, uh, recognized, you know, in a, in a number of magazines and and um, oh, there's a I guess a Sydney Morning Herald article about about your work, like in, in in a lot of food magazines and so forth.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I the the focus of my work was to make tableware that presented food well because I think in, in that sense, in the functional sense, you know, the, the pot is actually finished when the food's on it. So um, I had a lot of... I still have a bunch of chefs who use the work and they'll, they'll come back and say, we want a particular piece for a different dish. And um, and then the, the food magazines, you know, a lot of them would borrow work for... Um, presenting their art food articles and special chefs and chefs, um, uh, features and what have you.
0: You know, maybe you could, maybe you could reverse that saying that you had, um, it's not just that the pottery is not finished until the, till there's food on it. Maybe the food isn't finished until it's on the appropriate pottery.
1: Well, that's true too.
0: Yeah. Um, so explain if you will, a little bit more about, about what it is that, um, your your pottery makes basically basically to provide you know your living, and then after that let's talk about the kind of stuff that you do for fun.
1: Well, it does it, I mean, the ba- the. I mean, one has to make work that sells if you're going to make a living out of selling your work, and that's just um, you know a very realistic approach to what I think. And the tableware, for me, finances the more one-off pieces, the artwork that I want to do, and the wood-fired pieces. So for a long time, I i, just concent- I have just concentrated on making a living, and it's only been in the last uh, two or three years, I suppose, that the opportunity has really arisen to be able to um, be involved in wood-firing again, even though... You know, it always been sitting in, my, in the back of my mind, thinking, "This is, you know, I want to get back to it. I want to get back to it." But the opportunity didn't arise. So it has now, and I've been doing consistently a bit more for the last three years, I suppose. Um, let's
0: ta- talking. Let's talk about the production wear a little bit. What are mm-hmm. some of the techniques that you use to produce your production wear?
1: Well. I Obviously a lot is throwing. there's um, a bunch of things that are press moulded, and then I have, uh, I built a Jigger Jolly, which, um, you know, allows me to do, you know, the, some of the throwing pieces, that, what I used to throw a lot quicker, and also to employ people to to um, make those shapes.
0: Tell, explain what a, a Jigger and Jolly is.
1: Well, basically, it's um, you know you have a mold on the wheel head that has usually the outside shape of a bowl, and you have a rib on the arm that has the inside shape of the bowl, and that lump of clay goes in the mold, and then the the rib on the on the arm will force obviously form the the shape in the clay, and then as it dries, just take it out and and finish the rim and the outside a bit.
0: I think we were, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you were getting non-round shapes out of your Jigger and Jolly.
1: Yeah, well, I think the, um, it's a real, obviously Jigger and Jolly is made, you know, it's an industrial process that comes from the Industrial Revolution, basically, and adapting it to relatively small volumes that we do as a studio potter has been very interesting and then looking at the challenge to say well can I how many different shapes can I really get out of the one mould so a number of um, shapes that I make I actually deform them or change the shape after I've formed it in the mould so that out of um, you know one mould I might be able to make half a dozen different shapes in the end
0: mm. so you're kind of and this ma- sort of
1: this actually comes really from my engineering and manufacturing background in a sense you're you know, s- that um, way that you approach managing a manufacturing and process
0: so you're you're taking um, you're taking something and sort of melding the melding a, a a mechanical and a human touch to the piece, at
1: yeah. the same time. Yeah.
0: When you're thinking about pieces to make, how much of how much of your thought is influenced by this melding of, you know, the mechanical and the human?
1: Um. Well, initially, I'll have an idea for a shape, and um, if it's a round shape. That I'll do on the jig jolly, you know. After I've done that, then I'll think, then I'll think about how I can alter it a bit, maybe. But usually, the initial impetus for it will be just a very round shape. And then, once it's out, well, what else can I do with this shape? And how can I make it different? I mean, unfortunately, the mar- most most people in the marketplace still want things that are round. <laughs> they don't understand the aesthetics maybe of having something that isn't round or is different shape
0: you know it's and it's 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 actually really hard to make things that aren't round uh i'm talking about me personally i'm making a, i'm well i'm just finished now i'm gonna fire next week um but i tried to make some stuff that wasn't round and it was really really hard and uh, even though I would start it out to be not round, by the time I'm getting to the end, it's round. And I'm just talking, you know, straight hand-built stuff, not just, you know, things you would think would be easy to make, not round. But there's there's some tyranny to roundness that's really hard to overcome.
1: You know, I don't think um, I think it's a, oh, I think it's only with years and years of experience of making round things that you can suddenly, you can start beginning to make things that aren't round
0: tell me a little more about that
1: well it's the freedom that comes with years of experience and control that you can slowly begin to maybe let the clay speak for itself a bit more maybe I'm not sure but it only comes with incredible control that you can lose that control it doesn't make much sense but maybe it's a more of a sort of Zen approach to, to working with clay
0: what I found while I was trying to make things that weren't round was that um, even though I I'd, I'd try to start with them being not round over time as I'd add coils and other bits they would end up they would just start rounding out somehow and uh, you know it's kind of frustrating because I'd I'd be trying to make something that was maybe maybe had a couple sides or several sides. Mm. And yet by the time I get to the top it's kind of it's turned into this sort of roundish shape.
1: I think it's the years of experience. Yeah. Uh, I mean I've been throwing now for you know, like thirty odd year thirty years. I feel I'm just beginning to get to that stage. Right. I can just feel it. And that's you know with the last nearly what eighteen years or something, usually working on the wheel, throwing every day almost.
0: Wow. So okay. And a, I don't a lot think there's any. Yeah, I me. mean I just
1: don't think there's any alternative. But it's like learning a musical instrument. You know, you just have to work at it all the time.
0: What are some of the things you're currently making for your wood fire work? The one-off work.
1: Well, I've been—I've um, really enjoyed making some very large blossom vases. They've been a lot of fun, and, and the shape has been improving. You know, every time I every time I make one, so that I'm very happy with the way they're coming out now. And then there's a lot of just very simple cylindrical forms. Um, that are altered a little bit. And the other the other shape that I've I really had a lot of fun with was um, a very round sort of shape, a vase, but where I've dried the surface, so I've got a lot of texture on the surface by shaping it from the inside but not touching the outside. So you get this sort of surface that looks like... Um, you know, a dried riverbed when the clay is all cracking in the bottom of it sort of
0: thing. I love that. I love that surface. Um those, that's really attractive somehow, the uh the cracked surface to me. Now I, I know when we were talking before you said you were you'd been working on your blossom vases for or you've been working on these for years. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah. Well, I have. I've made a lot of blossom vases over the years, and it was about. Um, I sort of, uh, you know, would make a few each year, maybe if that, and, um, and then there's some years I didn't make any because I'm just concentrating so much on making plates and bowls and things, and then um, a few years ago, uh, one of the uh, one of the first opportunities I had to. a a short wood firing with a friend of mine i whipped off a couple of blossom vases and they just sort of popped out of nowhere almost or it seemed like that so and they were they they were great i was very pleased with them and since then it's it's sort of been taking the shape further and further and pushing it to its limits and it's been very very um enjoyable process
0: so where Where are you firing right now? Uh, I'm talking about the wood firing, of course.
1: Well, most of the wood firings happened at the Sturt workshops in Mittagong, which is southwest of Sydney, where I've um, just recently fired an anagama kiln with a friend of mine. The two of us shared this firing, and um, and we're planning some more. But, you know, it's sort of a, a case of, you know,
0: once a year. Mhm. Um. Just as a small digression, uh, tell me a little bit about about Sturt, because uh, the names come up before, but I don't know if it's I don't know how widely known it is in North America. I know I hadn't heard of it before I had talked with. Um,
1: yeah, well, I think you've you've spoken to Steve Harrison, yes. haven't
0: you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve lives not up.
1: far from Sturt. Right. And um that's probably where it came up again. Mm-hmm. But it's a, a, it's a, like a craft centre, uh, gallery workshops that um, was started. Uh, let me think now, maybe even before the second world war and concentrating um, probably at that stage, mainly on wood. And it has a fantastic wood school there now and wood workshops just amazing and then also clay was sort of came in i think in the early 50s i'm not sure about this and um then the sort the of pottery has had a number of resident potters there teaching now since that time and um they've got uh three wood-fired kilns and a bunch of gas-fired kilns and they Teach classes as well as workshops, and I think um, I think next year it's an international wood fire convention there.
0: Hmm, that sounds, that would be fun.
1: Yeah, it's um oh, it's a great invite. They're great kilns. Um, in May, I'm helping a friend of mine who's uh, head teacher at the one of the technical colleges fire in naborigama there, which um, which will be fun. We've fired that a few times.
0: Uh, between anagama and noborigama, which do you prefer to fire?
1: Well, I think the anagama is the, produces the results that I'm probably more interested in. Um, so, yeah, I suppose the anagama.
0: Just for the pure fun of firing... You know if you if you left left the results to be whatever they might be but just for the the pure fun of firing itself which do you prefer niborigama or anagama
1: oh the anagama I mean I think you're much closer to the actual process you know bigger firebox that you can be more involved with closer to the pots the side stoking yeah okay much more exciting process I suppose much more demanding physically as well
0: let's talk let's let's change the subject a little bit do you have any advice that you would give to people who are interested in you know leaving their um, safe and secure jobs and becoming potters
1: yeah I think um, making a living out of Selling your work, there's a there's a bunch of things. I suppose initially the first thing is making things that people want to buy, and being aware of you know fashion trends, watching the marketplace, and not being too precious about being a ceramic artist as such. You know you you have to sell a lot of pots, and you have to make things that people want to. You have to sell them at the right price. And, you know, you have to um, be making things that people want to buy. Um, after that, then it's about being professional in in a business sense, the way you approach it, and being reliable and all that sort of thing.
0: So, yeah. In a pu-
1: purely business approach to, to your work.
0: And when you say a purely business approach, what kinds of... Um, what kinds of areas of, are you contemplating there?
1: Well, just being I suppose being organized you know, going out and selling um, marketing um, you know, making the work and having it be delivered on time and, and consistent quality all these very sort of basic business principles that we would like to try and forget I suppose but <laughs> if you're going to make a living out of it you have to embrace them there's no question about it
0: How much would you estimate you have to spend um, doing well the non-pottery part in your pottery business
1: Oh, Sometimes it might be 50% of my time It just, you know, goes through different cycles, really. But um, there is a huge amount to do. You know, it might be packing up pots ready for shipment. It might be going to a trade show in terms of selling, you know, making appointments, knocking on doors. There's a lot of things to do. I think uh, also one of the other areas that are important is, is important is to actually work out a product range, you know, looking at different price points, and developing a product range might take 12 months. might even take longer you know, to actually work out the problem, so you're actually producing something reliably, repetitively all the time.
0: Let's go back to the nuts and bolts of this. How long are your work days?
1: Well, if I'm really busy like that, and uh, this could happen very shortly too, I'm looking at a big job. Um, I'll often start work at 5 or 5.30 in the morning, and then, you know, I'll take a break and go for a swim, come home and have breakfast, and get back to work at about 8 o'clock, and then basically work through till 6 or 7 at night.
0: That's a long day.
1: And that's sort of yeah, you know, I mightn't keep that complete that schedule up all week, but you know, I'm usually working 6 or 7 days a week.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um it's fair to say that uh doing the pottery business is not something for the faint of heart, or the lazy?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to, firstly, you have to love it. You know, I have no problem going to work on a Monday morning. In fact, the work week, you know, for the last, ever since I've been making pots full-time, well, there's no end to the work week, no beginning.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Just
1: mainly because I love it. Right.
0: Right. Well, instead of instead of it being a work week beginning and ending, it's just your life.
1: Yeah, that's it. I mean, some things get quite tedious. I mean, some I've had customers in the past that might order 100 teapots, and that drives me nuts. <laughs> you know, it's such a fiddly bloody thing to make. <laughs> you know, I get a bit sick of that. But mostly there's such a variety of things that I'm working on that uh, you know, it's not not a problem.
0: Mm. Well, I I really I I love your flat your flat teapots especially. You know the flat one.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been making them for a long time now. They're, I've tried to think of ways to improve the shape or change it or come up with something different, but I haven't been able to yet.
0: That just, and I've been
1: making that shape for probably ten or twelve years.
0: I look at that I look at that shape and I think that is hard. You know, to make um something round and wide, yet with the walls so the wall's so short. So it's like uh, it's like two plates. It's almost like two plates stuck rim to rim. And to be able to throw that is
1: Yeah, they're throwing off the hump.
0: Malcolm, before we before we end this call, um, you have a you have a website. Is that right? Yep. What is that?
1: www.malcolmgreenwood.com.
0: And that's M A L C O L M G R E E N W O O D. That's it. Okay. And your your work is available online for sale too, is right? As well, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean the people. I mean the, the website mainly is to show people images. I uh, probably get a relatively small number of sales directly from the website, but you know people will view it and give me a call, and we can talk about what they want because usually people want things some somewhat different.
0: Mm, okay, yeah. so it's kind of the website is sort of. Um sort of like a catalog in the sense of uh, it's a it's a set of guidelines yeah I get it okay and uh, you're you're of course you're located in Australia you you ship internationally yep yep
1: not a lot at the moment but but I do yeah
0: um and if uh, people were to actually be in Sydney is there a place that they can go to view your work
1: well, they can give me a call and make a time to come to the workshop. Okay. I mean, there's a there's various outlets around the, around the city, but they're more than welcome to give me a phone call and make an appointment and, and come and see what I've got available here and see the workshop.
0: And your contact information is available on your website? Yep. Malcolm, I, I want to thank you for chatting with me about your experiences in your pottery. It's been really informative.
1: My pleasure.